and welcome back to Homebrewing DIY, the show that takes on the do-it-yourself aspect of homebrewing. Gadgets, contraptions, and parts, this podcast covers it all. On today's show, we're talking to George Duncan of Barley and Hops Brewing. He has a great YouTube channel, and he's based in Coppers Cove, Texas. And today we're going to talk about a chiller that he's built out of a window AC unit and a cooler. We're also going to discuss his YouTube channel and all the great topics that you can see. You should check it out. But first, I want to ask all of my listeners for a little bit of help. I'm going to do a year-end show between Christmas and New Year's, and I want it to be about homebrew hacks. What is a homebrew hack, you ask? Well, it's something that you figured out to make your brew day easier. Is it a gadget that you've built or something you do to your system that's truly unique? I'm going to read them on the air for the final show of the year. So I would like to start asking for submissions now. So please email me your homebrew hacks to podcast at homebrewing DIY beer. No matter how big or how small your hack is, I want to hear it. And please use the subject homebrew hacks in the subject line of your email. Once again, send your homebrew hack to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. And did you know that you could follow the show on social media? We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram under the handle at homebrewingdiy, all one word. The show so far has been going strong for about three months now, and it's been pretty awesome adventure so far. Our listenership has been growing steadily, and as we grow, the show is going to need your support. Please support the show on Patreon. You can get an ad-free episode and bonus content if you head over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy. You can give as little as a dollar a month to remove the ads from this show. You can also support us by giving us a review on podchaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. Your reviews help others find this show. The last way you can support the show is to head over to the website homebrewingdiy.beer and use some of our sponsor leaks like Brewfather, the brewing software. It's a very powerful and easy to use piece of software. It's by far my favorite and I have to admit, I've pretty much used them all. From recipe creation to walking through your brew day, Brewfather is the best. Go to homebrewingdiy.beer, click on the Brewfather banner and sign up today. Feedback. You can always send feedback to podcast at homebrewingdiy.beer. We would love to hear from you. Now, let's get into our show and talk to George Duncan about his DIY air conditioning controlled chiller. I'd like to introduce George Duncan from Barley and Hops Brewing. He has a great YouTube channel, Highly recommend you check it out. Uh, it's it's uh, got quite a following. And today we're going to talk about some of the really amazing projects that he's done on his channel. And so I'd like to welcome George. Uh, welcome to Homebrewing DIY. Oh, thank you so much. I do appreciate it. This is a oh, this is a great experience. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show, and uh, we're excited to talk to you. Uh, you're you're in uh, in Texas. Why don't Why don't you give us a, a bit of background of uh, kind of how you started the youtube channel and and kind of how it's morphed into what it is today certainly yeah yeah you know and and anytime that we can share information with the community because that's our sole focus is uh sharing transparent information and the truth about brewing and distilling um 
I, I retired out of the military after 35 years of service. So, uh, you know, after doing that, you know, wife and I, we invested in a bunch of different things. We, we actually bought a building here uh, and it had an empty room upstairs, uh, a little alcove. And, uh, you know, I was complaining all the time about not having a brew shop nearby. And this is back in 2012. And my wife just looked at me and said, hey, you know, uh, you've been complaining about it all this time. You got an empty spot, you know, get off your butt. You ain't doing anything else. So what we did, we actually opened up a brew shop and uh, it, it took off very well. Um, and, you know, we started getting a great following and things started happening. And uh, I started to do a little bit of my own advertising. So I did a couple of videos and I mean, they, they were hitting pretty good. And I was like, this is not a bad deal, you know, um, and what I found was that the information I was looking for as a, at that point, as a shop owner, retailer, um, and as a home brewer myself, um, it was just, there was a lot of information that was lacking. And especially when we started to move into the distilling process, which is something that's in, was in my family and a bunch of other families. And so uh, I dedicated myself to, I said, let, you know, somebody needs to tell the truth. So I started doing these videos and the uh, I was not prepared initially at the uh, results and the response I got from the community that has grown now to we've got millions and millions of hits and views. Um, we're working our way close to 50,000 subscribers. And, you know, I, I really appreciate I mean, my my heart goes out to every one of them because a sub subscribe to a channel is the way that a channel stays alive. And uh, this channel lives on only because of our uh, subscribers and the community at large. Yeah, I I I was actually uh, you know looking for a specific project, and, and your channel came up, and I was surprised at the size of your community, and not only that, how active your community was in kind of driving the content on your site. You really do, and, and you know that's what's most impressive and heartwarming is that you know I'll start I read the comments every day. You know I go through all of those and I answer them um or just respond with a like uh because there's so many of them but to listen to it reading the comments back and forth and then the conversations that develop in the comment section um i don't know if, if most people understand that on a youtube channel when you comment below everybody else gets to see your comment and oh by the way you can spark up a conversation with someone else and i get most of our ideas in our queries really from a lot of those comments um and sometimes it's a little bit off base you know it's it may not be a hundred percent accurate but it's accurate to the writer um and so i try to delve into it and i'll start to test and experiment or demonstrate in any way fashion that i can to try to lend some clarity to it um or um and in many cases this will happen i'll, I'll just i'll mention a name and say hey th thanks to you know, person, whoever um, showed me this and then I'll demonstrate that and go, this is a great idea that I was not aware of. So, yeah, the community really wraps its arms around each other. Um, you know, we put out a, uh, a net call one time. Uh, I've got a blind distiller. This guy is 100 percent blind and he was interested in um, some of the products, some of the things that we're working on, like the PID controller, which you're very familiar with. And. I mean, to a blind person, a PID controller is useless unless you can hear it. And we couldn't find anywhere. I, I looked, reached out to the community and the outpour of support um, of people wanting to donate to it, to get involved in it. And a lot of people did. And my heart goes, again, my thanks 
because if it wasn't for the community, we would not have been able to build um, that audible PID controller and then take it down and deliver it to Mike. And so he uses uh, that thing uh, religiously. And it, it's it's a fancy. It's just one of those heartwarming stories where this community just galvanized itself together for a good cause. Yeah, I I have to admit that, like, uh, you know, our last episode of this show was on uh, homebrew clubs and the community built around those. But in all reality, even with online communities, uh, for me, my I, I find my home on the Reddit homebrewing forum. I, I have <laughs> friends that I've known there for years since I started homebrewing almost a decade ago. And it's the same thing. I, I feel like there are people there that I've only met online yet. I feel very close to and sometimes as close to as some of the people that I do brew with in person. So yeah, it's, exactly. it's amazing. Exactly. What, what, how, how amazing the homebrewing community really is and just, you know, how supportive it is. And, oh, uh, and speaking of some of the projects, cause uh, you know, I, I have a DIY homebrewing show and, and to be mm-hmm. honest, uh, yours is a very much a DIY uh, uh, channel. Uh, you know, the, the project that really drew me in, was the uh, AC controller you used to uh, cool water with. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, and so I, I'd kind of like to dive into that project a bit and and really, sure. A, what what were you trying to achieve with it? And then uh, after that, we'll dive into kind of how you built it. So what was the, okay. the well, challenge you were having? Well, well, the challenge, and this was this one falls right into the distilling community. Uh, the challenge was, you know, when you run a still, you know, you're going to run it. It, of course, takes a lot of energy, a lot of heat. Um, and it's a controlled process, but the, the output is uh, is going to be a hot vapor, and you condense that hot vapor back to a liquid, and that liquid is alcohol. Um, but what happens is, is that the water that you run through the condenser, um, as it's removing all of that heat, uh, the water gets hot. Now you got one of two choices here. You know, you can either run the your tap, which now you're paying for water, um, or you can get a big cooler and put a pump into it, you know, and, and pump the water out of the cooler and just recycle the water. But when you do that, the water gets hot, so it starts to lose its ability to condense. So the solution for that is, well, add ice. And you just continuously add ice and, you know, it maintained a certain temperature, which is just cool um, until you're finished your run. Now, in my case, uh, and in a lot of people's experiences, you know, this may take 30, 40, 50 pounds of ice because you're doing this for a couple of hours. So uh, that becomes a little bit costly. Um, so we started to look for other solutions. Uh, so that's what this was born out of. It was born out of a search for a, uh, a solution to a lifelong problem that a lot of us had experienced. And, uh, you know, I started working with Peltier devices. I was trying to develop, you know, a way to super chill water and use it and recirculate that. And, you know, I'm still working on that, but there's some challenges because it's not that efficient. And then uh, I looked over and by golly, there was a uh, 5,000 BTU air conditioner that I had sitting around for 20 years. And, you know, I everybody knows how an air conditioner works. You know, it's, it's hot on one side and it's cold on the other. And so I just theorized that that would work. You think? Yeah, and, and and to be honest, uh, you're you're the cool thing is is that you're not the first person to come to this realization, and I've seen a lot of different takes on the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, different exactly. adaptations. Yeah, and but but in all reality, it's almost like 
that AC unit was almost made to condense water in a cooler. It's like it's like the way that they're built and the way that the pipes can kind of set in is is uh, how yeah, that works. Uh, and so, just so you'll know, I mean, just in, in all honesty, I mean, it wasn't my idea. Um, again, it was a community. Um, I had a lot of comments about you know different ways that what they were using. You know, I had one guy that was running his um, his condenser through an old refrigerator freezer, and I was like, now that's ingenious. You know, it's constantly cold in there, so he was just recirculating his water through the freezer. And I was like, see there, there, there are many, many ways of doing this. Yeah. Different approaches to engineering the same problem, right? Exactly. So, so why don't you describe to me what you actually built and kind of how, how it worked to it. it basically, if you could explain it to us in an audio format, uh, kind of how you engineered okay, yeah. this, this, this project. Yeah. Well, well the, um, not it wasn't the hardest part, but the most delicate part was the disassembly. Um, I, I got a 90-quart uh, cooler, and I got a couple of them laying around. You know, most people have one of them, you know, them large coolers. Some of them, some of them have wheels on them. Uh, but and I wanted to use something large enough that was going, you know, I'd, I'd be able to control and, um, you know, use for a whole bunch of different processes. So I, I just took this thing, I, I took the lid off, and I mounted uh, the 5,000 BTU air conditioner on top after I got it all disassembled. And um, on the back side of it where the hinges mate, um, I cut a hole, well, sawed off probably a three inches uh, in, into the lid itself and about three inches wide, like a square. And what that was for was to allow the copper tubing from the evaporator um, to fold down inside. Uh, so this was the tricky part. Now, for those who, who don't understand, uh, or may not clearly understand it, the way an air conditioner works really is it just produces high pressure with a pump on one end, and that goes through a small valve, and pressure and temperature are proportionate. So when you lower the pressure, which is it goes through this small valve and it explodes, it comes out, it flashes, and the temperature drops dramatically from somewhere up in the 200s all the way down to it's somewhere close to zero in some cases. It just depends on the on the mixture. Um, and then that runs through the evaporator. And then air flows across the evaporator and condenses. Uh, the water runs off of it. And then you have cold air that comes out the other side. Well, guess what? That thing is so cold, if you place that into a liquid, into water, uh, that water acts just like the flow of air. And anything that comes in contact with it and flows by it will immediately cool as well. So uh, it, it's sort of like, it, you know, the aha moment. Uh, I pulled that apart and had it sitting up on a table. And I got a video on that. If you go to our YouTube channel, you can see the video of how we actually did that. Uh, it, in order to, it, it, it can be problematic if you get a little bit too um, manly with it, I guess. Uh, and if you're aggressive, because you could pop one of those uh, copper lines and then you then you got to reseal it. And then, of course, refill it. But uh, if you're gentle with it, you can bend that copper line and that evaporator. Once you take the screws out of it, where it's, where it's seated against the, the frame, and you can just bend that straight down. And what that, what that really makes is a, an upside down, almost kind of looking air conditioner. So you got the coils that are sitting inside the uh, cooler and the air conditioner sits on top the cooler and all the heat's dissipated from the back of it, and 
voila, you fill it with water, turn it on, and I can cool 20 gallons or so of water uh, from an average here in Texas when I was doing this uh, during the summertime. You know, it probably comes out of the tap at 78 or so, 80 degrees. Uh, I can cool that down to about 40 degrees in 30 minutes. And I can keep it wow, there. That's, that's because pretty the fast. water that goes, yeah, the water that comes out of there with a pump, I just pump the water out with a small pump. Uh, it pumps right into my condenser. And then when it comes out of the condenser, it goes into the other end of the cooler. So what it does is it causes the water to flow as well at the same time. So I killed two birds with one stone and it works extremely well. And what is the actual temperature you're trying to hold at? Like, what what is it that, uh, you know, for example, for distilling, I, I got to be honest, I've personally only homebrewed beer. Uh, what is the so, temperature yeah. you're trying to keep as a constant through that condense and con- condensation phase to uh, you know, get, get it to come together? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it vaporizes it. Uh, well, there's a scientific answer for that. You know, 173.8 degrees or 78.8 or 78.6 Celsius. So that's the, the that's the temperature of the vapor. What you have to do is you have to drop that down by about 10 degrees. It doesn't take a whole lot. So you, in order to be efficient, though, you need to bring it down as far as you can. Now, believe it or not, 70 degrees or 80 degrees would do it. But the problem in that is, is that... Over a period of about the first 30 minutes, your water is no longer that temperature because it goes through, picks up heat, and goes back into the cooler. So it starts to get really hot. And then you run into a problem where you can no longer transfer heat efficiently. That's a thermodynamic uh, effect. Uh, and, and then, of course, then you stop condensing. So you need to get it down as far as you can. Uh, you don't need to be freezing. It really doesn't need to be 40 degrees. But if you can keep it in the 60 degree range uh, it is more than effective and efficient to uh, to condense and oh by the way just because uh, you're a, a beer brewer um, understand that everything you do and winemakers and distillers is exactly the same thing with the exception of you bottle a winemaker's bottle and distillers separate it's the yeah. only difference yeah, the fermentation process is still the same. It's really just the the difference between a uh, distilling and and other uh, exactly. beverages. The, what you do with the actual it. distilling portion. Yeah, what you do with <laughs> it when you get to the, yeah, what you do with it when you get to the end. You know exactly. And then and, and the other question is is that you know for me this design of you know this water chiller has other effects it can be used for brewing it could be used for brewing i could think in a couple ways uh one way i could think of right now is that if i were to use a similar project when trying to cool down my wart from a boil right so for example if i had that pumping through my uh immersion chiller that that would be one way of keeping my water my groundwater temperature low and and since it's cycling through, I'm not wasting water one and B I'm not th- adding ice to it. Right. That could be one example of that use. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, see, there, there are so many adaptations for this and, um, and there's so many problems that you can resolve. I mean, but you know, now this is not a solution looking for a problem, mind you, <laughs> you know, this was a, a problem experienced in a solution developed by many other people as well. So yeah, you can use it for a lot of different things. Anything you need to use to cool with uh, you can, um, except for something like cryogenics, you know, you're not, you're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. That's a little too cold. <laughs> that's uh, but, a little bit But then, extreme. uh, 
I, I've also seen a very similar setup where people will take this exact setup where you take uh, the 5000 BTU unit, <laughs> you're going to then, you know, cut the notches out in the cooler, add the condenser side to that. And then what what I've seen is they add water to it just like you did, but then they add a little glycol to it. And so, for example, when they've added glycol to it, they can get the temperature even lower, closer to freezing. And then they use it for if, let's say, you had a conical fermenter that doesn't fit in a refrigerator, you yes. could line it with the lines, insulated, of course, uh, have the PID controllers added to it, and then be able to actually maintain fermentation chambers with a very similar setup. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so you see, and this can, I mean, I, you know, I, there's something else that this is really good for, and I've seen it in action. Um, it, I went into this a high class bar. I very seldom do that. Okay. <laughs> I did, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm, I'm a regular kind of guy, but uh, I walked into a high class bar and I can't remember which city it was in, but the bar top had about a six inch uh, river that ran through the center of it. Then you could see it, uh, but it was glass on the, or yeah, it was, it was like a glass on the top. And it was glycol that was running through it. And what that was for, so that, you know, while you're drinking your beer, you put your beer down on that, and it made, it kept it cool. So, you know, you weren't sitting on them. Maybe it's a little bit extreme, but, I mean, that's what the, that was the purpose of it. So it was constantly, it was a chilled bar top. It was only about six inches in uh, in depth, and it's, it sat right in the middle of the bar. So, you know, you put your beer up there, and it, it never got hot or never got warm. It just stayed cold. And... Um, they use a very similar setup, from what I understand now, um, to cool that glycol that they were running through the top of the bar. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, I just a bit of history on me is I, I did come from the bar and restaurant business, and uh, the bar that I used to run fifteen years ago. It's been a long time. Uh, that bar had a very very long beer line like uh you know the the walk-in fridge was probably yeah. five or six hundred feet from the actual tap and we had a dual glycol system that basically did exactly that refrigerated the glycol ran it along the lines through the entire run and then made it so that when it came out the tap it was cold the whole way that's also another use you could take this you know cooler full of glycol insulate the lines with your beer lines. Let's say you had a, uh, let's say your refrigeration yet yeah, you, I I've heard of people running their beer taps to their kitchen. For example, oh. this would be the solution to doing that because you could keep the beer cold in the line all the way to your, you know, point of pouring. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and th these are some of the little things, you know, that we pick up here and there, you know, as, as issues arise, we just, we try to find a solution or we reach out to the community. They give us the solution and then, I'll put together a video on it uh, and share that with everybody else because there's no such thing as a bad idea if it works. I completely agree. Uh, I, I let, let's talk about some other projects that you've done on the channel. Um, I know you guys do a lot of uh, testing, you know, different brewing methods. Uh, can you talk about maybe some recent tests that you've done that uh, have really stood out to you? Yeah. Um, you, um, matter of fact, I did one. I did a video today. It wasn't as much of a test as it was a demonstration. You know, all different various yeast strains from beer yeast to wine, you know, to cider. Oh, gosh. Well, Fleischmann's bread yeast that 
a lot of people really like, um, and then distillers yeast. So I did one of those today, but we take a really good practical approach. Um, I did a uh, I did a shot last a couple weeks ago on no lives I think it was last week on uh, sake and rice because you know you theorize you understand this as well being a brewer that you know you're converting starches to fermentable sugars and yep. uh, you know yeah and I mean and even in in every almost every um, distilling recipe you know you'll have a bunch of grains and uh, base products you know, but you'll always have barley in there. And we all understand, you know, barley has uh, two row barley's got a diastatic power of like 140 or so. Uh, it takes 30 diastatic power points to convert itself, and the rest converts anything with it. So that amylase enzyme is converting all of those starches to fermentable sugars. So, you know, you think about it, and you're like, well, you know, rice is primarily about 90% starch. So, you know, why can't we convert that? And I had a lot of people write in and ask that question, you know, can you, can you use amylase to convert rice? And I said, well, let's find out. So we actually did a test and we do a side-by-side -side test with each one. Um, I use different types of rice in different environments, all equal and measured out. And then we tested every one of those and come to find out that our initial gravity uh, before using amylase was uh, 1.000 water. Um, and then after amylase, uh, it was 1.000. So the, the, the answer to the question at that point was, well, no, amylase will not convert rice to fermentable sugars. Um, and then I thought, well, let me just leave this. So I said, 18 hours later, I checked it again, and I got the same results. Uh, so I thought maybe there was a time factor involved in that because I've had people tell me that they do that. And for the life of me now, I can't understand how they do it, but um, I say that I've done the test. Now, if someone else can find a way to do it, do the test and show me. Now, here's what I did learn, because I've done a lot of research on it. Um, you know, all rice is polished. And when you remove the husk and the germ uh, from the outside of the rice, which leaves it as a piece of starch, and it's just white. It's so concentrated. Um, had we left the germ, the potential of converting that, which is naturally what it would do, that germ does that, converts that rice to fermentable sugars. So um, since we've removed all of that, uh, it makes rice a very complex starch that cannot be converted by amylase, based on my experience, though. Well, and Unless, if you're talking yeah. about uh, sake, I mean, isn't that essentially kind of what the koji does is that kind of breaks it down so that it can convert to sugar? Exactly. And uh, so, yeah, it's koji kin and just it's like a dust, but it's spores and you allow these spores to grow on the rice itself uh, and you keep it in an oven for like at 86 degrees for 30. It takes 30 hours to grow this and you're actually growing a mold on the rice and then you introduce that with another batch of fresh rice that you've um, steamed. And when that goes into a fermenter, the most fantastic thing that, to watch is this starts to convert that rice to fermentable sugars at the same time that it's fermenting because you add yeast with it at the same time. So you've got this process happening that most of us are accustomed to. You know, you do your preparation, you do your starch conversions, you do your measurements, you know, you understand what your potentials are going to be so you can do some predictions. Uh, but with sake, you're actually doing the conversion and the fermentation at the same time. 
which kind of leaves your hands free, uh, you can't test it. Uh, you know, this uh, it, it, it almost makes you wonder. Um, you can you can guess it what your alcohol percentage is, but you're not going to get an accurate figure. You know what I mean? Yeah, but uh, you know, all agreed. But then the idea is that you can get pretty close so that you're not like overdoing it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, it, you still know how much, right? You know how, like, for example, I know that if I put 12 pounds of grain into a batch of beer, I know generally what the uh, gravity is going to be, right? And I think that would yeah. be the same with rice, though you're not, I, I may be off a few points here and there. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, yeah, you can get a you can get a ballpark figure, you know, and, and believe it or not, um, I had one of my viewers, and I take calls all day long, every day. Um, and that's great. Um, and he told me, he said, George, you know, he says, after listening to your YouTube channel, I figured out, he goes, it doesn't really matter almost what I use. It's normally 30 gravity points per pound per gallon. I was like, well, yeah, it's, you know, now there are some things that, you know, are 34 gravity points per gallon, uh, per pound per gallon. There are some that are 25, but yeah, and generally speaking, you know, a pound per gallon is about 30, about 30 gravity points. So you got a good point there. Yeah, it's true. I mean, obviously, if you really muck it up and like, for example, uh, don't like going back to beer here, if you if you were to not hit a, a, a proper mashing temperature, you're definitely going to lose some you're definitely going to have some issues. Um, You'll lose you know, efficiencies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you try to mash it 130, you're not going to convert. Right. So, exactly. that, you know, so, for example, then you're not going to get that that 30 points but if you are sticking to the process which is the right temperatures and time yeah yep and the amount of water is equal to the you know amount like for example if you don't water it down too much because if you add more water to it you just dilute the solution yeah but the idea is that yeah you could generally tell so totally it's funny so much math involved in brewing but then to me it's there's just that touch of art and they kind of there, merge together, right? Yeah, there's, there's, it, it is. There's, there's an art, a science, uh, and a skill. I think that goes, you know, that perfect blend of those three things, the perfect trifecta. Um, and you know, somebody who's really successful is just this is George's opinion. Is look, if you can follow instructions and not try to outthink it. And I use this term a lot. Uh, this, this dis- description um, when it comes to distilling, I'm like, you know, this is a tenth grade science project. Um, and the, the yeah. thing is, I give it to a 10th grader and they get it right every time. My gosh, I got Mike down and you know, he's blind and he does it and he gets it right all the time. And he's very successful. But normally you give it to a middle aged man. For some reason, we want to outthink it. You know? And- yeah, but I also think that it has to do with it. And, you know, being somebody who's given advice to a lot of brewers over the time that I, I have been brewing and also from being a newbie at some point it's almost there there's there's a certain level of patience involved that i think when you're brand new you don't get right so hey i want to go open a fermenter while it's at high cruise and you just don't want to do that uh you know those kinds of things right uh so for me it's like the, the i would say the number one thing to learn when making any alcoholic beverage whether it be sake wine uh beer uh spirits patience wait yes. if, when you think you should open it give it another week <laughs> and you know hey another thing I'd, I'd also add to that is that you know consider your source because there is so much misinformation um you can 
ask most people about brewing and most of them for some reason they feel obligated to tell you everything they know and they a lot of them have never brewed uh, but they still feel obligated to give you all the advice in the world um and, and a lot of it is you know hearsay like well yeah you know you you throw this in but then you turn over here you look that way and if you set the bucket the right way you know you make sure the sun's only on half of it that's exactly that's the only way it's going to work i was like where did you get that from <laughs> So we, we try to dispel a lot of the rumors, um, folklore. Uh, one, in, one in particular is methanol. Uh, you know, you, it, you, I know you've heard it as well, you know. Well, you, oh, yeah. If, if, you don't, yeah. if you drink that methanol, you're going to go blind. And so I use this description. You make beer, and then you bottle it. A winemaker makes his wine, and he bottles it. I, I run it in a still, and I separate the methanol. Uh, I've done something neither the beer maker or the winemaker has done, which means that you've diluted the methanol and you spread it out and you're still drinking it. Nobody's gone blind. Uh, my point is, is you will not create enough methanol in a still to make you go blind or to kill you. Um, there's actually, there's more methanol in a half a gallon of apple juice that you get from the grocery store than you'll ever make. So, you know, we, we try to dispel the the folklores and the myths, because there's a whole lot of history and science that goes into that, that it's really easy to misunderstand because you hear it one time, it's so drastic. If you drink that, you go blind. Well, yeah, there was a time when that was happening, but there's a story behind that. And there's some data and facts that back that up. Uh, it just doesn't happen. Yeah. And the story behind it is really that's people adding alcohol to things they shouldn't have been alco adding alcohol to. Right. So, exactly. Uh, you know, it's you like, know, during yeah. yeah, during prohibition, you know, the, the government was making methanol because they still needed it for clinical purposes and some unscrupulous, you know, bootleggers, they get their hands on a barrel of that. They didn't know any better. So they were using that to spike. And yep. you know, they, they'd spike it and, you know, wind up, they get, they called the Jake walk, you know, um, there's a, I could talk for hours about the, the period of prohibition and some of the history and, you know, the presidents and, you know, but that's probably good for another show. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, it, it is something to be said where it's like, uh, you know, there are myths out there, obviously uh, just to, you know, distilling technically is not legal in the United States. So that is something to, uh, you know, kind of let the, let the users oh, you're know. Right. That you're right. You're right. Yep. Is that, uh, you know, to buy all of the equipment to do it, to get all the way up to the process of doing it, totally legal. But the actual act of uh, distilling is uh, technically illegal. Um, I will Absolutely. say, uh, I don't know a single distiller who's been arrested unless they were out trying to sell it. So, you know, uh, take that for what it is. Very true. Uh, Very but true. The idea I, is I just say, yeah, distiller beware. Um, you know, there's a, there are a couple. There's one state in particular. Um It'll come on oh, Missouri. Uh, Missouri treats uh, distilling like they do beer and wine. 200 gallons a year per adult in the household. Yeah, uh, which is awesome. But I can tell you that, uh, you know, I've had bourbon made by my friends uh, and, and it's great. I've had great whiskey made by uh, uh, by by uh, home brewers who, you know, dabble in both. And uh, I have mm -hmm. to admit that, uh you know, I've had some some great spirits made by brewers that do a really amazing job and take the same care, consideration, and effort that they would put into making any of their best beers go into the same craft that there is in distilling. So, you know, absolutely. Yeah. You know, there's an equal amount of love 
um, to the process of, you know, especially you know, craft beer uh, brewers. My goodness, exactly. I'm, I'm so impressed. Um, I, I've tried, you know, I've, I've done well with beer. I've, I've done well with wine. I, I do well with spirits. But, but there's a certain, there's a love that's attached to that art. Um, and they're all it, equal. It, I mean, a distiller loves what he does, and he, he doesn't do it to break the law. He's, and, you know, a beer brewer doesn't do it to save money. Um, it's, it can be costly, but it can be, you know, economical as well. But really, they're doing it. It's, it's a love for the challenge, the hobby, uh, the experience, uh, you know? Uh, I'm, I'm going to say this out loud and hopefully my i i could tell you that uh, uh i've i'm a, i got a 50 50 shot of my wife actually listening to this but you know when i started brewing trust me i was like hey babe don't worry i'm gonna get into brewing it's gonna be so much cheaper but i always knew deep down that it wasn't gonna be cheaper it was all about you know the processes and because that's actually right. what i am i'm a process guy uh to make a cup of coffee for me is a process let alone making a beer and so the idea is that uh that that's at least what drives me. And when I talk to uh, people in my homebrew club and I talk to other brewers on the show or wherever I talk to brewers, that is actually, I think what drives people is the process and the final result from that process. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, well, I mean, anybody who watches our channel, you know, they'll tell you I'm a data point guy, you know, I'm like, okay. And, and I use that term a lot because I'm, it's, it's so important in all of our processes and all of our tests that we do, all of our demonstrations, we always look for data points because data points tell you something, you know, and, and you write those down and it lets you know that if you're successful in this process, what you've just done, is, you know, you know what your data points are. Those are your milestones. Um, and, you know, that's what you need to achieve in order to, what do we do as beer brewers? We always want to reproduce the best beer we ever made, right? We, we always yep. want to do that. And so, and the only way to do that is you need your set of data points or your milestones in order to get there. So it's just, it's such a cool hobby. Well, and, and I always uh, put out the challenge to people who make great beer and, uh, Hey, you made a great beer. Now do it 10 times, right? Because that's actually Aye. the hardest part of uh, brewing is consistency. And uh, people who brew the same beer consistently, that is actually the real talent of brewing. I, Those and, and are to be honest, yes. And, and to be honest, that like I, I brew, I brewed for 10 years. I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't toot my own horn. I think I make pretty good beer. My friends tell me I make pretty good beer, but I could tell you that for me to make the same beer five or six times and have it be exactly the same every time is something I've never really been able to do. And that's because I don't have a system that I can dial in that way. Uh, I could do it on the fermentation side, but you know, on my actual brew side, that's a little more difficult for me to do. And so for me, it's, it's, I, I think that when we talk about the mastery of brewing and really, if you were to say, this is how I become a true master at this art and craft, that to me is where I say, Hey, you know, you've done what you've, you've set out to do is when you can not only brew great, great beer, but brew it consistently. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. And, you know, another thing is, is being able to identify when things don't go right. You uh -huh. know, and uh, I'm a believer in, you know, anything and everything I've ever done. Um, I want to know everything I could possibly know about it, you know, from the far left to the far right of this process um, so that and, and I need to I want to be able to understand it, you know, 
technically, scientifically, and all of that, so that should something happen in the middle of that that I'm not expecting, um, I'll have an understanding enough to know that it's probably because of this. Um, I can point to it, and that I can address and either correct or fix for the next one. Because, uh, you know, it, as, as you start fixing something, if you start fixing a whole bunch of things and then it does work, you'll never know what it was you fixed. Exactly. And also the importance of keeping good notes when never you brew. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. Uh, well, let, let's, uh, you know, I, I got one more good question for you, which is, what was your biggest disaster of of your brewing career when you've uh you know you've 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 made something and what didn't work out <laughs> oh my goodness oh you had to come with that one yeah oh. <laughs> uh believe it or not there's there's there are several okay um what if i just said everything <laughs> everything about a particular brew that did not work right um it, see i went in it uh, you know, again, having the distilling background from family, which was, believe it or not, nothing. <laughs> uh, I thought I knew something. Um, but when I got into beer brewing itself, I've been brew I've brewed beer for probably 15 years or so. Um, and then I got the store going. I was like, man, I can really take off with this. So I, I said, let me experiment and do some really neat stuff. I wanted to do a jalapeno beer. Uh, that was a disaster from start to finish uh, because <laughs> I was not prepared for what those uh, jalapeno peppers, first of all, were going to do to the beer. Um, and then my combination of a citra hop uh, with a cascade. Um, and then I think I put it, yeah, I put a Mount Hood in it as well. Um, that was a total disaster that would make you want to vomit. Uh, it not only was <laughs> things growing on it, um, I actually tasted it and I did get sick from it. So um, there's a lesson to be learned there that, you know, sometimes you just can't sit back and go, well, I think I'm going to do this. Uh, if I throw a little bit of that in, I throw a little bit of this, everything will be fine. And now there's <laughs> one other one that, that just rocked my world. Um, I, I, I wanted to do some dry hopping and uh, I had it in a corny keg and everything was fine. The beer was nice. It was a nice light ale. I had a really good crisp character to it, and everything was fine. And I said, "Man, I really want to dry hop this, and uh, and get a lot more of that 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 hop flavor." Uh, so I put a bunch of Centennial hops in a hop sock, uh, in two of them actually. Um, in the hop socks, I looked at my son. I said, "Hey, give me a couple of hop socks," and he did. Don't know where they came from, uh, but I threw them in there. And about two weeks later, when I couldn't get the corny keg open because it had been pressurized. Whatever was on those hop socks had a counter effect, and it grew a funk inside the uh, corny keg. It built up pressure. I couldn't get it. I had to release the pressure, and I finally got it out. When I opened it up, uh, it smelled like turpentine. So that was a total failure. <laughs> Start uh, I mean, again, you know, and you go through those. You know, have I ever poured out a batch? You better believe it. But I've kept oh. mo a lot more than I've poured out. Me too, and I, you know, I got to say that uh, if it's bad, just pour it out. Like oh. you know, it 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 wasn't enough money to drink a keg of bad beer, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, believe it or not, yeah, <laughs> you're right. You know, and once and once you really, you know. Uh, don't ask me. I mean, how, how can I save this? Mm, you can't, you know, <laughs> uh, I get a whole lot of the questions like, Hey, well, well, can I do this? I say, well, can you? Yes. The real question is, should you? 
you know, <laughs> should you do that is a better question to ask me because yeah, true like, that. you can do just about anything, but have you considered some of the uh, second, third order effects? <laughs> <laughs> well, George, uh, I want to thank you for a coming on the show, really just kind of talking about, uh, you know, your history and, and your, your YouTube channel and all the cool, amazing projects that you've done there. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on the show again. I, I know that you're going to always have uh, you, you, you produce a lot of videos and uh, it's a lot of content to go through. Um, I, if you're just for any listeners, if you want to check out George's channel, it is called Barley and Hops Brewing. And uh, just search for that on YouTube. It will come up. Uh, it's uh, it, it's it's a great channel. And if you really want to get into some some great homebrewing videos and spend a lot of time, because he's got a lot of videos, to to really just dive into uh, different projects, different tests that he's got going on. Uh, learn a little bit about distilling. Learn a little bit about sake. Uh, you're you're definitely gonna in for a treat if you uh, watch uh, George's channel. So uh, that, that's a, that's a high honor, and I appreciate that. You know, it's it's so good to be here, and I, I appreciate you having me. And I hope you hopefully you'll have me back sometime. Um, this is we'll a pleasure. Yeah, we'll definitely have you back. So thank you, George. Okay, well, thank you. I want to thank George for taking the time to talk with me today. And if you'd like more information, I'll have some embedded videos about what we talked about today from George's YouTube channel. If you head over to homebrewingdiy.beer. George is a great guy and you need to check out his channel. So we'll definitely have him back and please support the podcast by heading over to patreon.com forward slash homebrewingdiy. Well, that's it for today's show and we'll see you all next week on Homebrewing DIY.
Have you ever wanted to make a podcast? Do you have a subject you want to discuss with listeners? Do you even know where to start? Well, if you want to make a podcast and you want to get started now, I could not recommend Anchor enough. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. Creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. And you can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. Hey, look, I shopped around for a place to post my podcast and Anchor was the easiest, most streamlined experience you could ask for. So if you're looking for a place for your new podcast, Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Once again, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. When I saw the YouTube channel for Barley and Hops Brewing, I knew I needed to talk to George, the creator of the channel. So today we're going to talk to George Duncan about how you can build a DIY chiller with an AC unit and a cooler. We're also going to talk about other projects like making sake and distilling and all kinds of things. So stick around and listen to George Duncan on homebrewing DIY. (laughs) 